Hello and welcome to another APW Property Podcast episode. Yes, we do like Mondays because that's when we post online and the cries of joy can be heard around the world. Uh, but that's because APW advises expats on their property purchases in the UK and they have clientele from Australia to Zimbabwe and all the country letters of the alphabet in between. Uh, today from APW, we have Ben Lewis. Hi, Ben. Hi, Paul. And you do have clients from all over the world, don't you? We certainly do, from Africa to the countries of MENA to Asia, and we even had a mortgage client in Antarctica as well. Okay, but uh, you don't have countries with all the letters of the alphabet, do you? Is that a trick question, Paul? Well, you have to guess which two letters of the alphabet don't feature as the starting letters of country names. Oh, God. Um, Let's just go with X. X and poor, poor, you've got me here. Help me okay, out. Well, I'm going to pass that question on to our special guest today, uh, Stephen Small from legal firm Russell Cook. Welcome, Stephen. Hello. Hi, Paul. Hi. So uh, before we get into the meat of our topic, uh, what two letters of the alphabet don't start as the names of countries? Well, I think I'm stumped just like Ben. Uh, I would uh, guess at X. can't think of a country that begins with X. And I'm going to go for Y as the other one. And uh, no, because there's Yemen. Um, X does. Uh, yes, X is the right answer. Um, in Zanadu de Kublai Khan, that doesn't count because it's uh, not a con- current country. But uh, it's W. But that's rather contentious because uh, obviously, Ben, where are you at the moment? Uh, Wales. And yes. I certainly I, I don't I don't like that answer, Paul. No, well, it's because it's from the UN list of countries, which doesn't it recognises Wales as a country, probably, but it in the list of countries it only features sovereign nations, which is of course uh, England doesn't even count in that. I think it will be all lumped together as the United Kingdom. Yeah. Anyway, so a massive diversion. But uh, today our topic is some elements of the Rental Reform Bill, which is why we have a legal expert with us. It was published in by the government in May and will be progressing through Parliament. Uh, well, one of the elements that's been hitting the headlines is the end of so-called no-fault evictions. Uh, but that's why we've called in Stephen. Um, Stephen Small, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and Russell Cook. Sure, Paul. Uh, I am a property litigation solicitor and a partner at Russell Cook, uh, which is a top 100 law firm. Uh, We have roughly 200 solicitors who specialise in all sorts of different areas of law. Many of my colleagues are leaders in their areas. I hope I am also considered to be one of those. And we have a wide range of clients, including commercial entities, uh, private individuals and not-for-profits as well. Okay, and you have a particular speciality in tenancy law. Yes, that's right. I've had an interest in it since I uh, qualified about 15 years ago. Uh, And it's essentially my day-to-day job is trying to navigate the tenancy law of England and Wales. Okay. Uh, The Renters' Reform Bill. Ben, uh, can you fill us in on what it is? Sure. Uh, The Renters' Reform Bill uh, was published on the 17th of May this year. Uh, It will now make its journey through Parliament on its way to gaining royal assent and passing into law and implementation. Uh, Which is, I imagine, a long journey. Certainly. Uh, The publication is effectively the first reading in the House of Commons, and it follows the earlier publication of a fairer private rented sector, or PRS, uh, which was the white paper that set out the government intentions. Okay. Uh, So yes, that white paper was published last year, I think. And then at some point, it will have a second reading in the Commons. 
uh, when MPs get a chance to debate the merits of the bill. Uh, then it goes to the committee stage. Then it comes back to the Commons for the third reading and it goes to the House of Lords for approval. And then it gets its royal assent where it becomes the Renters' Reform Act. Uh, and then probably six months later, the Act will apply to new tenancies. And then 12 months after that, the law will apply to all tenancies, which probably means summer or autumn of 2025. Um, Stephen, uh, is that the way you read the timeline? Yes, I suppose it's important to say that all of that will be subject to change. And uh, there there is likely to be quite a lot of change, I imagine, as, as the bill passes through Parliament. But I think the fundamental aim of the bill is is still going to come through intact once it becomes an act and uh, fundamentally we're looking at a very big shift a very big change for the relationship between landlords and tenants uh, in England and Wales. Okay and and, uh, can you characterize that change what do you what do you see the main points of it being? So I think the main points are a recognition that uh, renting is now uh, an option for people as a permanent uh, way of living, essentially. So the aspiration of owning property is is out of the reach of many in the country now, uh, and people have been renting for a long time. There has gradually been an increase in the numbers of people renting in, in the UK, and it is a, a type of... Um, property interest that has very little security at the moment Uh, and what the renters reform bill looks to do is to uh, give tenants the vast majority of tenants uh, the security that they currently lack by handing them more control over uh, how long tenancies will run for and removing a number of rights that landlords currently have to control that relationship so it's a rebalancing of the relationship. Yes, and of course, it also must be said that um, it used to be uh, that the you know council housing was a, a form of permanent renting, uh, but obviously once they stopped building quite so much council housing, and then also once the uh, Thatcher reforms allowed people to buy their own council housing, the amount of social housing stock has has gone down. Uh, and the private rent, rented sector has stepped in in a very big way and and grown much larger, which has then led to all sorts of problems with some tenants uh, and some landlords. The majority, it must be said, are still uh, all fine and reasonable. But uh, the Renters Reform Act is hoping to step in and, as you say, change that landlord-tenant relationship and in favour of tenancies, it must be said. So yes, Paul, I think that's correct. Uh, tenants are going to be given significantly more power uh, over how long the landlord and tenant relationship will last. Um, landlords, uh, on the flip side, will have a lot less power than they, they used to. And although this is all being published and marketed as a as a new new era for the private rented sector, in fact, what it represents is going back to something that we had prior to the 1990s uh, in that uh, tenants prior to then had significantly greater security of tenure generally uh, than tenants have become accustomed to over the last uh, 30 years or so. Uh, So whilst it's right that this is all going to be new and a big shock for the current market, it it was done previously. So we, we have some idea of how it might play out. 
Okay, so there is precedent. Uh, but let me just take you through the National Residents uh, Landlord Association summary of uh, some key elements of the uh, bill. Uh, that landlords will no longer be able to take back possession of rental properties using Section 21. And we'll come on to talk about that in a second. A new ombudsman will be set up to settle disputes and relieve pressure on the court system. Alongside these proposals, a digital property portal uh, is going to be set up to better inform landlords and tenants of their rights and obligations, uh, so that will also be established. And tenants will be granted the legal right to request that a pet be allowed to stay in their rental property. So uh, pets being an important element of this bill as well. Also, other elements that were included following the consultation process were a commitment from the government that they will focus action on helping landlords to deal with antisocial tenants or tenants refusing to pay rent, uh, proposals to improve the speed of court possession hearings throughout the through the use of digital platforms. Councils will also be forced to report on the extent to which they're enforcing regulations designed to root out rogue and criminal landlords from the sector. But um, let's go back to that first one. Let's have a look at ending tenancy agreements. Um, that's the big change, the ending of so-called no-fault evictions. Uh, can you help explain what happens with a Section 21 notice now? And then we'll go on to what uh, is proposed in the future. Yes, absolutely, Paul. Uh, so a Section 21 notice is a notice that will usually give a tenant two months uh, notice of the fact that the landlord wants to recover possession of the property that they're currently renting. Uh, and it's currently a prescribed form, which means there's a there's a form you can download uh, from the from the government website and uh, fill in and a landlord just needs to give that to the tenant and in very simple terms at the expiry of that notice that's when the tenant is supposed to leave the landlord doesn't need to give any reason for serving that notice and there have been some concerns that that means that there's scope for it for the process to be abused and hence the the misnomer in my view of no fault evictions has has arisen it is often the case in my experience that whilst no reason needs to be given, uh, there is often a good reason for serving that notice. So that it's probably better to describe them as no reason notices rather than no fault evictions. But I should add that in the current system, a Section 21 notice doesn't have much legal force on its own. So landlords do need to go to court and obtain a possession order in order to recover possession of, of property. So it's not the case at the moment that you can serve a notice and demand a tenant leaves once that notice expires. Okay, so what uh, what about the other alternative, the section eight, or or what about the sort of the moment when a, an, an assured shorthold tenancy comes to an end? What's the current situation with the section eight notices, or just the end of a tenancy? So when when a contractual fixed term ends, so if a landlord and tenants have agreed to have the property rented for a year, for instance, at the end of that year, something called a statutory periodic tenancy arises automatically if the tenant continues to live there. Uh, and the landlord's options for ending that tenancy, if they want it to end, are to serve a Section 21 notice, as we've already discussed, or they might decide to serve a Section 8 notice. And a Section 8 notice is typically viewed as the notice you would serve if the tenant has done something wrong. Again, that's a bit of a mischaracterization because Section 8 is simply a notice uh, that will cite a ground for possession. So it's a it's a 4A reason notice. 
uh, and the grounds that can be relied upon in a Section 8 notice vary and they include grounds where there is no tenant fault, which I think is, is important. A Section 8 notice can be a no-fault eviction in the same way that a Section 21 notice can be a no-fault eviction. But the typical grounds you will see in a Section 8 notice will be uh, in relation to rent arrears, nuisance being caused by a tenant, subletting in instances where a tenant isn't allowed to sublet. But there are also other grounds where there's no fault on the part of the tenant, as I say. So for instance, there's a ground that landlords can currently rely on where they want to move into the property, for, in for instance, uh, for their own use. Um, and in that, in those circumstances, a tenant of a current tenancy could find themselves having to leave through no fault of their own. Okay. And uh, that Section 8 idea will continue uh, beyond the Rental Reform Act? Yes, that's right. So the Renters Reform Act or bill at the moment is proposing that assured shorthold tenancies will end. Uh, and that means that effectively the vast majority of tenancies granted to individuals in relation to residential property will be what's known as an assured tenancy. Section 8 applies at the moment to both assured shorthold tenancies and assured tenancies. So um, once you remove the assured shorthold tenancy tier of tenancy, that doesn't have any direct effect on Section 8 because it, it already applies to what to the rest of what's, what's left. Uh, so Section 8 will continue, although the bill does propose some relatively significant amendments to the grounds that can be relied upon in a Section 8 notice. Okay, uh, which is why they want to beef up the ombudsman and uh, have the property portal and uh, and speed up this court process. All of things which, uh, you know, there is a certain amount of suspicion about how quickly and how effectively the government will be able to do their side of this bargain. Yes, I think that's right, that there's, there's a healthy dose of scepticism about how much investment will be put behind these reforms. Uh, the court system at the moment uh, is really struggling under the under the weight of possession cases going through it and that's a combination of things it's uh, it's likely under investment over a number of years but also an increase in cases since uh, since covid uh, ceased to be the the concern it, it was a couple of years ago so people are getting on with business and that that means properties changing hands it means tenancies ending and we are also seeing, of course, the um, the cost of living crisis, which means that, anecdotally at least, we're seeing an increase in the number of tenants unable to pay their rent. Uh, so all, all of that has uh, combined together to result in already significant levels of uh, court cases going through the courts. I think one of the government's aims in bringing into law the Renters Reform Bill will be a reduction in the number of no-fault cases so that's there will be fewer and then eventually no section 21 cases running through the courts i'm yet to be convinced as to whether or not that will reduce overall the number of cases because a lot of those section 21 cases will simply become section 8 cases okay well given that this i mean the bill has been published uh, and it, as we say it's going to go through parliament what advice would you give existing landlords as to anything that they should do now, uh, just to get their ducks in a row, um, even though the law might change or the, the details of it, you know, could be 
subtly different. What are the things that landlords can do now if they're worried about the progress of this bill? It's never too early for landlords to seek advice about what the impact of the bill might be on uh, on their the property that they let at the moment and whether that's one property or a small portfolio of properties um, it's important to to try to ascertain as early as possible what the impact might be although uh, it is also important to bear in mind that any advice sought uh, at the moment at least is going to be quite heavily caveated purely because the uh, the bill may change quite significantly as it goes through parliament one thing to really bear in mind is that tenancies being granted now are very likely to be affected by the bill once it becomes an act. So it's quite common at the moment for landlords to grant tenancies of uh, one, two, three years of fixed term. And those longer fixed terms uh, will very likely still be running when the new law comes into force. And so what I would recommend to landlords now considering granting new tenancies or renewing tenancies for existing tenants is they should consider possibly a shorter fixed term to give them the flex- flexibility of ending the agreement before the new law comes in, uh, in the event it turns out that it's not going to be something that that particular landlord wants to see through and continue in the market. Consider break notices uh, being inserted into tenancy agreements again to allow maximum flexibility and enhance due diligence on tenants. In the past with Section 21, one of the benefits for landlords was if the tenant didn't comply with the tenancy agreement, then yes, Section 8 was always the option, but Section 21 could be relied upon essentially to get possession. That's not going to be the case in the future. So enhanced due due diligence will probably be where landlords uh, can protect themselves best to ensure that they have tenants who are going to comply with the terms of the tenancy. Yes, there's a lot of paperwork that should be given to tenants at the start of a tenancy. And if you haven't given them all of that paperwork, whether it's your gas safety certificate or or, um, electrical condition reports or or whichever it is, depending on the tenancy, you need to make sure that all of that has been complied with because those can sometimes be a stumbling block in any repossession orders that you might put forward. Is that right? That's absolutely correct, Paul. Uh, At the moment, uh, landlords are obliged to serve uh, lots of different uh, pieces of information, certificates and documentation on tenants uh, at the outset of tenancies generally. And a failure to do that at the moment is a bar on service of a valid Section 21 notice. It's, It's an interesting perspective, I think, that some people take that Section 21 was abolished some time ago when all of those requirements were introduced because it's a it's a rare landlord, certainly someone who isn't a professional landlord, who is fully aware of all those obligations. And it is very, very easy to not do something that you're supposed to do. Uh, and obviously, ignorance is no defence. But the effect is that Section 21 notices can't be served until those documents have been served uh, and and the vast majority of section 21 notices i uh, for, for instance am asked to review now will turn out to be invalid for some reason or another uh, so section 21 has for a long time been curtailed it's we're yet to see what the government uh, might do in relation to those various pieces of documentation once section 21 falls away uh, it would be very odd for the government to say landlords no le- no longer need to give their tenants gas safety certificates uh, which of course is a separate legal obligation anyway under the gas safety regulations uh, but i imagine they'll also want tenants to receive energy 
performance certificates and the how to rent leaflet that they went to the bother of creating. Uh, so they might link those documents to the validity of Section 8 notice, notices. In the bill itself, the only clear thing that is being linked is protecting the deposit properly. Uh, so the bill provides that a Section 8 notice won't be valid if a, if a deposit hasn't been protected properly and the tenant hasn't been given the information they need to be given in relation to it. Uh, that's a new requirement. At the moment, Section 8 notices will be valid regardless of whether a deposit has been protected properly. Okay, so there's plenty to to investigate and have a look at with your existing portfolio. Ben, one of the things that we concentrate on uh, with some of the podcasts is looking at individual cities. And obviously, the main benefit of a city is usually that it has a large student population. And uh, students typically rent for the year, the academic year that they are attending, which would be from uh, sort of August to July. You have a lot of, uh, you know, interest in student um, accommodation investors, don't you? Yes, no, that is correct, Paul. And just on that topic, um, when when our clients are investing in student accommodation, they will usually, obviously, use letting agents, managing agents. Um, so it's very important for that side, third party, to be fully aware of the Section Twenty One and Section Eight as well. But uh, Stephen, with student accommodation, I've noticed in the, uh, some of the commentary about the rental reform bill, uh, obviously this change in how to end a tenancy uh, does affect quite heavily uh, student accommodation and, and that sort of student letting area. How, can you summarise what the problem is? Uh, so uh, under the renters reform bill, uh, one might have expected uh, the government to recognise that giving tenants the power to end the tenancy and effectively l- removing that power from landlords might cause problems for the student population or the student tenancy market subsector in the private rented sector. Um, but unfortunately, I think uh, it has to be said, there isn't any provision uh, that recognises that tenancies to students should be treated any differently from tenancies to families, for instance. So uh, landlords who at the moment have properties around uh, university towns, for instance, uh, and are used to having a a tenant population that shifts from year to year and are perfectly happy with that and have a business model that, that accounts for that, may, if subject to there not being some pretty significant reforms to the bill, they may face themselves having uh, taking on a, a student, for instance, in their first year, having them through the second, third, fourth, fifth years, and then into their working life. Effectively, it will be up to the student tenant when they leave. Now, it's quite possible and perhaps quite likely that many students' budgets will uh, increase when they enter employment and they won't want to stay in what was originally student accommodation for them when they first started university. But the point is that the power will not be with the landlord to end the agreement. And ultimately, if the student and then tenant who is no longer a student decides they want to stay under the bill, that will be permitted. Okay. And anecdotally, of course, I understand that um, landlords quite liked having uh, new tenancies every year in the student population world, not least because of a certain amount of maintenance on uh, on carpets and furnishings after um, a- alleged student parties had taken place. <laughs> uh, well, 
I, I do think if, if I just uh, touch briefly again on students, there has been signs from the government that they are having second thoughts about uh, not uh, having some special provision for the private rented sector as regards lets to students. Uh, so given that there has been a, a semi-U-turn uh, on that uh, point already, I think it may be one of, of many potential changes as the bill passes through Parliament. I think it's a matter of, of watch this space. Whilst the headline of removing Section 21 is, is a big one, really the devil will be in the detail. And uh, what's really interesting and what we haven't perhaps touched upon in, in much detail here is is that the new grounds for Section 8 will uh, will give landlords some uh, some new approaches and new angles for seeking possession if they really need it. Uh, so it's not all doom and gloom for landlords. Okay, well, it's certainly something that we'll keep an eye on and we'll probably return to in a future podcast. For now, that's it for today. Uh, my thanks to Stephen for his expert opinions on today's topic. Uh, as I say, we're going to be keeping an eye on this as it chunters through Parliament. Uh, until then, it's goodbye from Stephen. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from Ben Lewis. Goodbye, Paul. And it's goodbye from me. My name is Paul Shearer. And there's also a friendly wave from our producer, Emma Holton from Brilliant Audio, who keeps us all on the straight and narrow. Uh, link in the show notes to Legal Foam Russell Cook and also to APW. Have a lovely day. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast series produced for APW by Emma Holton at Brilliant Audio. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe, hit like, share it with your friends. If you didn't, keep stum. You can find more episodes in all your usual podcast places.